Welcome to Walk in the Truth Podcast. Have you ever looked back in time and considered how certain defining moments have shaped your life and future? Today, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, looks at the importance of defining moments and how we can recognize what God is saying through them. Well, I'm so glad to be back with you this week. Uh, we spent the last week or two in California, my wife and I, where it never gets above 75 degrees and it's 55 degrees at night. Can somebody say amen? I mean, that was a great, great place. But if you go to the beach, you get sunburned within 30 minutes. So it's just a really amazing place. We hated to come back, but this is home. So here we are, 105 degrees home. And we are we're glad to be back. I'm convinced that people would not stay in California if it were not for the weather and the great beaches. Otherwise, they'd probably all come here. But we, uh, we're really glad to be home. We're glad to be back with you. And I can't wait to share this message with you. If you have your Bibles this morning, please take them and turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Probably some of the most familiar passages of Scripture that you have heard before, heard shared before, perhaps put in your heart and life before. And today I want to talk to you about defining habits. Our defining moment series is about moments in life where something happens to us that changes the future completely. About 10 years down the road and 15 years and 20 years down the road, in some cases longer, we look back to those defining moments and say, that was the moment my life changed. We've talked about moments of salvation. We talked about moments of catastrophe where, where bad things happen to us and then how we respond to those bad things affects us for the rest of our lives. Last week you heard from someone who shared a message about a defining moment of learning to trust God and obey God that he couldn't think possible before. Today I want to talk to you about defining habits, a little bit different from defining moments. Defining habits are moments when you learn, if I do this on a regular basis, I know the outcome will be different from what I'm getting right now. And I promise you today, two habits that would change your life. Please stand with me as we read the Bible today. Romans chapter 12. Verse 1 and 2. Paul says to the church at Rome, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Verse 2 you're more familiar with, perhaps. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, be honest with me this morning. How many of you know verse 2 pretty well? Would you raise your hand if you do? And I think many of us do. But today, I want to ask you to make sure that verse 2, all these verses, of course, but verse 2 is part of your life. Not just something you remember a little bit about, but part of the habit of your life. Join me in prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, help us to see the power of this habit. Help us to see what happens when we do this over and over and how you promised to transform us and how you promised to get us out of the mold that the world wants to squeeze us into. Lord, today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak to us loudly in our hearts and minds. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. 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 Please be seated if you would. These verses are quite frankly verses that I've known most of my life, even as a child. 
I can remember my parents showing me these verses. I can remember hearing about them in Sunday school classes that I went to. I can remember them on memory cards that were placed in front of me. Memorize this passage, John. Memorize this verse, John. And I memorized the verse, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove that which is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. But I have to say that for years, those verses were in my mind and heart, but they weren't taking root. They weren't growing. They weren't affecting me in any way. And the reason they weren't affecting me is because I, I was not obeying them. I was not doing what these verses told me to do. I didn't have the habit that these verses are telling us to have. I didn't have the practice that they promised to uh, bring reward to. I wasn't getting the outcomes that I was hoping I could get because I wasn't putting in to my life what I was called to put in my life. So we have this passage today, and, and I want to share with you some things. This passage is so powerful for your life in the days ahead. But first, before we dive into the two habits, I want to give you two reasons that we ought to be doing this. Two reasons, two whys. Should I pay attention to verse 1 and 2? Pay attention to the two habits verse 2 tells me to have. Why should I do that? Why should I interrupt, disrupt what I'm doing now in order to put this into my life? And we go back to verse 1 for that. So in verse 1, we find Paul starting off this text by saying, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, I hope you realize this is a huge request. The Apostle Paul says to the church, in unusual terms, he's beseeching them, he's begging them, he's imploring them, he's pleading with them. He said, I beseech you by the mercies of God. And then what he asks them to do is a huge order. It's a tall task. I urge you to give yourself, to sacrifice yourself to God. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. And that's only reasonable for you. That's your spiritual service of worship. That's how you really worship him. Now, that may be a new idea for some of you today. Worship is not what we get out of a song service. It's not what we get out of someone's teaching. Worship is not what we get out of a feeling or uh, an aura or an environment that helps things feel spiritual. That's not what worship is. Worship is not also not saying, oh, that's my favorite song. I love that vibe. I love that beat. I love to hear it over and over. Even if it stimulates you to love Jesus more, that's not what worship is. Worship is not what you get out of something. Worship is what you bring into something. And Paul's telling us to bring our everything to Christ. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God. In other words, it's not your offering that he's looking for. It's not the, the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament that he's looking for. It's not, it's not just cleaning up on Sundays and, and habitual worship, getting into worship week in and week out and singing the songs and doing the things. It's not just that he's looking for. He's looking for you to give yourself to him completely. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this in his book, Mere Christianity. I even love the lingo he uses. He says, hand over the whole natural self. All the desires you think are innocent as well as all the desires you think are wicked. The whole outfit, I love that line. Give him the whole outfit. Give God your whole outfit, everything about you. And I will give you, Scripture says, a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. I'll give you my will. And it shall become your will. 
Again, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, a great book to read, by the way. So this kind of sacrifice that he asked us to bring him is a life-transforming kind of sacrifice. In fact, our lives are not transformed until we bring this sacrifice to him. As long as you hold your life in your own hands, nothing will change. As long as you keep thinking the way you have thought, nothing is different. As long as you don't invest your whole self in Christ, there will not be those great outcomes you find in verse 2. You won't be able to know what the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God is, and you won't be able to prove or practice the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God if you don't first present your bodies a living sacrifice to Christ, which is what Paul is saying. So the obvious question for us today is why? Why would we do that? Why would we as believers in this world, in this time, do what this passage tells us to do? And I think the answer is in this chapter, but even more so in the chapter that precedes that. So I want you to back up just a few verses. If you have your Bibles open, go all the way back to chapter 11, verse 33, and then verse 36. Maybe you know this already. But the translators, when they made the translations of Scripture, added the chapter numbers and the verse numbers. In the original language, there are no chapter numbers, there are no verse numbers, and it's helpful for them to do that. I think it's helpful to be able to know this chapter 12 is where a thought idea begins to progress on to another thought idea and so forth. It's helpful for us to organize 66 whole books of the Bible into bite-sized and readable portions. I appreciate the translator's work, but sometimes the translators don't give us quite the context we need, and that's the case here. Chapter 12, verse 1, begins with what kind of word? The word therefore. And every time you see the word therefore, you have to go back and look at what it's built on, what it's based on. Now, if Paul is asking me to give my whole life as a living sacrifice to God, I have a good question. Why should I do that? And in verse 33 and verse 36, he tells us why. Let's look at those verses. He says, all the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And then verse 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I think this answers my question. The question of why do I need to be the sacrifice? Why would I give myself to him? Why should we have defining moments like this where we expect God to speak to us and our lives are changed? Why does it matter what habits we cultivate with God? And here's the answer why. Let me summarize it for you. The greatness of God and the glory of God should motivate ourselves to give ourselves to him and have defining moments with him. The greatness of God and the glory of God are greater than anything else this world has to offer. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say, you can't even get to the depths of God. They're unfathomable to your mind. They're unsearchable to the way you know how to search for things. Most of us are Google experts. Try to search for on Google the unsearchable riches of God. Try to find out the unfathomable justice and wisdom of God. Google can't help you, but God can. And that's why the scripture says, give your whole self to him and you're going to find out things about God and about your own life that will revolutionize you. Sacrifice yourself for the greatness of God and the glory of God. Now we could spend a lot of time on that, but let me just make the point here 
We sacrifice ourselves for so many things and take such huge risk for such little reward. Ever done that before? Have you given away a lot in order to get a little bit of a thrill? I wish I had every dollar back. I'd spent thinking I was going to find something that would make me happy or satisfied with a product of some kind. And then later on I realized, man, that thrill didn't last long, did it? Or how much money do I spend for experiences thinking, oh, this is going to be the, the ultimate experience in life. I'll never want to pursue another great experience after this one. And then within five minutes, it's all right. I'm not sure I would have spent that money again. Or diving into something like drugs or alcohol because it gives us a rush and gives us a high. But we look back and go, that was not worth the sacrifice that I put into this. Now you're looking at a guy that spent some time and money on sacrificing big things for small rewards. I'm the guy who once ate a four-pound hamburger just to see if he could do it. <laughs> Eight half-pound patties. And I tell you, I ate every bite of that and wished I hadn't eaten about three-fourths of it. <laughs> I'm the guy that climbed a cliff 100 feet high, barefooted on sharp rocks in order to get the thrill of diving off a 100-foot cliff into a lake below. I only did that one time. It's not worth it to do that again. <laughs> People do crazy things for little reward. They really do. Now, you'd think we'd really be motivated to sacrifice for the greatness and the glory of God, wouldn't you? I mean, since we spend so much on getting so little back, what if we could give ourselves to something that was incomparable, someone who is unsearchable and unfathomable in his greatness and his glory, that's what Paul's saying. With all the thrills Paul had in life, he understood that the best thing to give himself to was God. And so he says to all believers, present yourself a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship to the God who is great and awesome and glorious. You should seek defining moments with him and you should want to develop those moments into habits. And when you do that, it's really amazing what God reveals to you about himself and what he reveals to you about yourself, about what he wants you to be, about how he wants you to change, about how he's wired you, about your purpose for life, answering the question, why was I placed in this spot, taking up space and breathing air? You want the answer to that question from the only one that can give it to you. How many of you in this room have taken personality tests before and, and enjoyed reading about yourself? I mean, I'm amazed at how people love to read them about themselves and their personality tests. And there are all kinds of personality tests out there. Um, and some of them are kind of weird, to be honest with you. They have all kinds of funny names. Uh, how many of you know about Enneagram? Would you raise your hand if you know about Enneagram? How many of you know what number you are with Enneagram? Would you raise your hand? Okay, many of you know what number you are. You talk to each other in conversations and you say, well, I'm a one or I'm a nine or I'm an eight. And the rest of us go, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> I think anagrams are fine. Go after it all you want. But the reward's kind of small. I actually had a job applicant one time say to me, well, there's something you need to know about me. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, I'm a beaver. <laughs> and I have no context for what that means. He meant that my personality test classifies me as a beaver, and my thought was, I'm looking for a human to fill this role. <laughs> I had no idea, but it became part of his vocabulary, part of the way he talked about things, and part of, of the way he did things. I don't know if you're a one or a nine. I don't know how high the numbers go. Maybe you're a 10. I don't know. 
I don't know if you're a beaver or an otter or a golden retriever. I don't know what you are. But I know this. God knows you. He knows how you're wired. He knows what your purpose is. And if you enjoy finding out things about yourself based on a 15-minute exam, what would it be like to find out something about yourself from the creator of the universe who had you in mind from the beginning when you were conceived, when given birth was what happened to you, when you became a full-fledged adult later on in life, what wouldn't you give to know what he thinks about who you are? That's what Paul's saying. Present your body as a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. I tell you, I, I, I thrill at knowing what God's plans have been for my life and looking back and seeing how he's directed and guided me all this way, all these years. I wouldn't do anything different. There is no thrill that can compare with the thrill of knowing what God's will is and being in God's will. So Paul says, give yourself, that's where you begin. And so I encourage you to do that. Give yourself to him. Surrender yourself to him daily. Start the day with him. Die to self. Let it be your spiritual service of worship to him. Regardless of what the song service was like, regardless of what worship time was like, regardless of the message itself, every day get up and say, God, I'm yours. I'm gonna give you my life. And it's the only reasonable spiritual thing I can do because you gave yourself for me. Start there, start there. Then the two habits. I promise you two habits today that are in this text and can't wait to get to them. And here we are in verse two, the first part of it says this. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want you to look at that line for just a moment. Stare at it, think through it. Two things here. Don't be conformed to negative command and be transformed to positive command. Now, as we dwell on those two things for just a moment, let me give you a little bit more insight about them. Both of these are imperatives. And as Paul writes this emphatic plea, he says, without doubt, absolutely, I plea with you that you must not be conformed to the world and you must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So these two imperatives, one is negative, stop doing something, you must stop it. And one is positive, something you must begin doing. It's present tense, so it's about doing it all the time into your future. It's also passive. And what passive means in this particular sense is that if you don't do something to reverse what's going on in your life and mind right now, you will be conformed to the world. So you must make a change, must make a difference, or it will push you into its mode. And you must be sure that you allow the power of God's word to transform your mind. So given that background, these two habits are gonna be pretty important to your life. By the way, someone told me the other day it takes 21 days to start a new habit. And I think that's largely true. We can get out of that habit if we're not careful, but if you wanna start a great habit that'll transform your life, then what I'm about to share with you uh, involves those kinds of habits. I love what B, uh, Jay Phillips said about this in his translation of verse two. Stop being squeezed into the world's pattern. Instead, be transformed into God's pattern. One of these two things is gonna happen to you. The truth is, that, that something has already happened to you if you're a resident on planet Earth. The world squeezes you into its mold. 
that it squeezes you into its mode a million different ways. Some of you have come to Christ and now you're slowly being transformed by the renewing of your mind and, and some of you are over this side of that spectrum, of that graph, and your mind is transformed and continually being transformed. Some of us are somewhere in between fully being transformed and fully being conformed. But one way or another, it's gonna happen to you. And every one of us have this command as believers in Jesus Christ that we must make the decision to be transformed. That is, we must have our minds qualitatively renewed so that we have a very different way of thinking. Now, you don't have to do anything to be squeezed into the world's mode. There's a million hands in this culture trying to shape you, and that's always been true. In a book called Good Faith, authors Lyons and Kinnaman write this. They said that Western society has a new moral code. And by the way, every society has its own moral code. It has its own way of trying to squeeze you into its mold. But this one says, they call this the morality of self-fulfillment. It says the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. And people should not criticize someone else's life choices as central to this code. The Bible says it more simply than that. In the book of Judges, every man did right in his own eyes. He did what was right in his own eyes, and it brought catastrophe to the culture in that day. The truth is we're way too fond of our own thoughts. We're way too happy about the way we think anyway. We think way too highly of ourselves, and that's part of the war that we're in. We've got to think more highly about God, about what God has said, about what God's truth is instead of our own thoughts. But you're being squeezed by a million hands. Now, just look at these hands for just a few moments. I have very large hands, and when I am at a television screen and I put my hand towards the camera, it becomes massive. It looks like a catcher's mitt, and that's why I'm doing it right now at the camera. <laughs> I want you to feel this today because this is true in all of our lives. Culture is shaping you. It's shaping you. It's pushing you here. It's pushing you there. It might be media that pushes you there. Movies. Music, thoughts, things you read, conversations you have, everything is molding you and shaping you, trying to make you something that it wants you to be. You're being shaped by a million hands, whether you know it or not. And it's really that we're passive. The truth is we are passive to all that. It's all happening. And sometimes we're really aware that culture is trying to shape us. Sometimes we have no idea. Sometimes we're so far over this way, we're completely deceived, thinking all is well. But in fact, our minds and our thoughts are far, far from God's truth. That's why the command that you are to surrender yourself to God first. You be the sacrifice. And then don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the world shape you the way it wants to shape you. If you are thinking today, well, I should just keep on believing whatever I want. You're already being squeezed and you've already been squeezed and you're already in the mold of the world. So here are these two habits. Let me spell them out plainly. First of all, we must resist the natural thinking of the world. You've got to resist. Don't be conformed. Don't be shaped. Don't let all of the world around us make us think and act the way it wants us to. And that's where spiritual growth gets real. And that's where the battles start heating up. Spiritual war takes place when we decide we're going to think more along the lines of what God says that we should say and think and do. And, and the world holds us back. And our spiritual adversary, the devil, is at work trying to send those fiery darts to keep us thinking the way he wants us to think, shaping us the way he wants us to be shaped. 
Whenever Paul writes about spiritual warfare, and particularly warfare of the mind, he uses spiritual analogies. And usually the armor of God is what comes up first when we talk about that. Found in Ephesians chapter 5, where he talks about the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. He talks about the, uh, the girdle of truth or the loins of truth. And he, he talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All of that is analogies to help us think about the fact that we really are in the battle. If Paul wanted to use any other picture that he desired, he could have used another picture, but he wanted us to know the war is real, the war is intense, and you need to be aware of your armor. And when the enemy approaches us, we're supposed to fight. We're supposed to resist. We're supposed to be able to say, you're not gonna take over my mind. I know you wanna shape my mind to the world, but my mind belongs to Christ because remember in verse one, I present my body as a living and holy sacrifice, which is my spiritual service of worship, and my mind is part of that. And so, no, the world can't have my mind. I refuse to let it have my mind, and I'm in a battle, I'm in a war. It's important that we resist those natural thoughts. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It's in a series of verses, verse 3, 4, and 5, that's very, very big on spiritual warfare, particularly the mind. Look in verse 5 with me at what it says. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Now you translate that into your thought life, the if of life, the I wonder if this, I wonder if that speculation, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That means I know God says this, and I know God did that, but did God? That's a, something raised up against the knowledge of God. But this next line is the most important one today. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Do you see that line? Take every thought captive. That's one word in the Greek. It's a word that means to captivate at spear point or sword point. Now, for purposes of illustration, I've brought one of my swords in today, and I have a collection of swords, by the way. Got a bunch of them, and they're really cool, and they're really sharp. So don't try to break into my office, okay? That's the, that's the message there. <laughs> but over the years, I've collected these, and, and one of the reasons I collect them is because of the symbol of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Yeah. And it's helpful to have one of these while I stand up here to, to illustrate this point. If I know thoughts are coming my way that are natural, worldly, unbiblical, untruthful, it's my responsibility to captivate at spirit point, to captivate at sword point that thought before it gains entry into my mind. Think of your mind as a house. Think of your house as having an ear gate, something you hear, an eye gate, something you see, a mouth gate, something you consume. You think about it having all those entry points into your life to dominate your thoughts, to lead your thoughts one way instead of another. And then think about the imagery that Paul gives us that results in me having this sword in my hand. As I see a thought coming my way, I captivate it by spear point. And I change the direction of that thinking. You say, well, I don't know if that really translates. Well, just imagine this. If you came to knock on the door of my home, my physical home, and I open the door with a sword in my hand, you might be less confident to storm into my house because I have this sword in my hand. Just the reality of a sword, just the presence of that changes the game, doesn't it? And the truth is, when you know the Word of God 
and are able to use it like the sword of the Spirit is intended to be used. It changes the game in terms of the world conforming you to its mold. And so this verse here says that we must be willing to resist, even violently resist, the thoughts that come into our mind. And we use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in order to do that. Keep that in mind for just a few moments because that's just the first habit. It tells us to stop, to resist. It tells that thought coming at us to stay out of our mind. And I will tell you over and over again, the best place to win the battle with an invader is at the door. Do not let them gain entry into your thought life. But the second habit works hand in hand with the first. Not only must we resist the natural thinking of the world, we must replace our natural thinking with his truth. Throughout the Bible, we're told to resist worldly thinking and replace it with God's truth. Help me complete this verse. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Jesus came to reveal the truth to us. That's why we have the Bible today. That's why we have the words of Jesus. He came to reveal truth to us and the truth sets us free. And that's the way it happens. The battle that you're going to have is the battle for the mind, the battle for your thoughts. And it's won by setting your mind on the right things, the truth. Now Paul's got this great line of Philippians chapter four for us that talks about thoughts that we ought to have in our mind and thoughts that we need to dedicate ourselves to thinking about. It's chapter four, verse eight of the book of Philippians. And you know this passage pretty well. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that passes understanding shall guard your hearts and your what? And your mind in Christ Jesus. And he follows that up with this verse. In chapter four, verse eight, he says these words. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. This is not a poster you put on your wall. This is the battle that you have. And you've got to reach into your arsenal and replace whatever is false with whatever is true. And replace whatever is dishonorable with whatever is honorable. And whatever is wrong needs to be replaced with whatever is right. And whatever is impure needs to be replaced with whatever is pure. All the way through this text that names Item after item that you have to replace the thoughts of the world. And specifically it happens when you struggle with anything and you find out what God's word says about that and you have the truth, the battle, the lie from that moment on. It's your sword in the battle. Craig Rochelle said it like this, what gets into your mind comes out in your life. And that's true. So it's so incredibly important that we learn to do that. I've shared just in small form my own battle with anger years ago. And by the time I was 18 or 19 years of age, I was very, very angry and quite destructive. Lost a lot of friends as a result of my temper tantrums and just the destruction that I caused as a result of that. I was mad about everything. And none of it was rational. I was mad at God in part because of my hearing loss. I was mad at how people responded to me. I was mad about what I thought the future held for me and I didn't think it was good. And there were so many things about my thinking in that day and time that contributed to my anger. But the problem was that the anger got out of control and before long it was smaller and smaller things would set me off. And as a result of that, as a young Christian battling with a big 
anger problem, I realized I was in trouble. And I really didn't have anybody to help me with it. I, I wasn't going to share with anybody that I needed help. Everybody around me knew I needed help, but I didn't. And there were two passages of Scripture that God directed me towards as I read my Bible. And those two passages became my lifeblood. That became the things that I used in battle. One was Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. It says, be angry and do not sin. and Don't let the sun go down on your anger, nor give the devil an opportunity. And that, that got my attention. Because I knew my mind was an opportunity for the enemy. And I was angry perpetually. And that command in Scripture was, was powerful. And then James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20 became an important passage to me as well. Let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And I put those verses in my mind, and as a 19-year-old young man wanting to move beyond my anger, those two passages gave me the sword I needed when anger started creeping in, when I could feel the emotion rise, when I realized something bad was about to happen that I didn't previously have much control over all of a sudden my mind was thinking with truth instead of emotion and before long and by that I mean a, a brief few months anger was just not a part of my life anymore and it hasn't been a part of my life since I was in college which was at least 10 years ago right <laughs> some of you get it some of you don't I get it resist the fear that you're worthless replace it with the fact that God's word says you're priceless. Resist fear that you feel. Replace it with the faith God calls you to walk by. Resist self. Replace it with Christ. Resist temptation. Replace it with truth. You don't have to give into it. Resist emptiness. Replace it with the purpose that God says he has for you. Dig into the depths of who God is. But my greatest battle wasn't just with anger. It was with the worldliness in my mind. Just the fact that I was susceptible to things I heard and read more so than I was susceptible to God. And over a two-year period while I was in graduate school, God gave me an amazing victory without me even knowing the war was being won. During those days, I, I had multiple jobs because we had a young, growing family. And, and I remember having a newspaper route uh, with something that people used to call the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Anybody remember a newspaper called the Fort Worth Star-Telegram? And uh, back in those days, that's what you read to keep up with the news, right? And uh, so I threw about 600 of those every morning at 2 a.m. to about 6 a.m. for two solid years while working several other jobs and going through graduate school. So I slept about two or three hours a night, and that was it for those two years. And in my life, and I think it's true of everybody, when you're worn out, when you're stressed out, you're vulnerable to temptation, to bad thoughts, to attitude issues, and I was getting overwhelmed. The things you see in the dark of the night, the things you see in the middle of the night are not worthy to repeat and certainly not something that helped my mindset. And I knew I was in trouble. I was struggling and didn't know how to get out of it. My sweet mother-in-law one day said, you know, I found 350 cassette tapes. A cassette tape is a previous form of media, for those of you that don't know. <laughs> and thereof, my pastor at the time, her pastor was a guy named Ron Dunn, great Bible teacher. And Ron had this very peculiar voice. It was a very high nasal voice. It didn't work well in person, but it worked great on the radio. He used to say, my mother told me I had both the face and the voice for radio ministry, and that's what I did. <laughs> But I could hear him. 
And I remember getting a Walkman headset and listening over and over. And for a span of two years, at least two years, at least 700 straight nights, listen to me. I listened to two of those messages for 700 straight nights. And it takes me a while to work through a tape like that and I have to back up because I missed some things and I fell in. Sometimes I would stop and take notes. But over the course of two years, my thinking was changed from stressed out, angry, add to problems, given to temptation, to where it was a calmness and serenity, a clarity about my life. My life was changed because my mind was changed. I look back and I think, you know, I had no idea what was going on. I knew the battle was there. I knew it was very real, but I didn't know how to fight that battle. But what I did know was those random cassette tapes were not so random. They were not coincidentally placed in my life. And I wasn't fully aware of the forces that were at work. And I wasn't really aware of the crossroads that I was at. But I now clearly know these were the most defining moments and habits in my life. And now decades later, I look back and those were the moments where my mind changed. And because my mind changed, my life changed. You talk about powerful. When I later got to know Ron, I told him the story and I said, Jesus saved my soul, but you might have saved my mind. And I meant it. Because the teaching of God's word changed my life. That's what the battle looks like. You've got to flood your mind with truth and the truth that sets us free. Now, if that sounds too radical for you, please realize that the world is radically devoted to taking your mind away from you. Please keep in mind that the world is radical and the solution is radical and the battle is serious and the weapons are serious, so you must resist and replace, resist and replace. This will change your life. It'll change your life. So here are some suggestions. First of all, read the Word of God daily. Get a plan and read it. When I was in college, man, we didn't have these plans on the Internet because we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have anybody telling us how to read through the Bible, so I got a calculator and calculated the number of pages in the Bible that I had in my possession and divided it by 365 and learned that I could read four pages a day of the Bible and get through the end of the Bible. I was amazed and mesmerized that only four pages of the Bible a day I could get through at the end of the year. And I, I committed to do that, and it changed my life. Find a plan. It's easier for you than it ever was for me. Find a plan. Get into it. Number two. Listen to solid biblical teaching. When you walk, when you drive, when you have free time, certainly as we gather in worship, as we gather in small groups, when people open the Word of God and teach it, get into that solid teaching. That's number two. Number three, memorize the verses that help you resist sin. What is it that you need a weapon for? What emotion, what thought process, what frustration, what fear do you need a verse for? Find your verse, find your knife, find your sword and your spear and get after the battle. And then number four, resist the mind control of the world. Limit the exposure of all the darts of the wicked one. There are so many of them. Your habits shape who you are. Two reasons why. Two habits, two outcomes. I can't quit till I get this outcome for you. Verse 2b. You do all that, and Paul says, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
In other words, when you practice these habits, when you resist worldly thinking, and when you replace it with biblical truth, you're going to have two outcomes. I think you can see it with this verse. Look at the last one first. You're going to know what's good and acceptable and perfect. And then in the earlier part of the verse, you're going to practice what's good and acceptable and perfect. So let me summarize it. When you practice these two habits, you will both know God's will and be able to practice God's will. Look at how powerful that is. You probably said before, if only I could know God's will or if only I could just obey God, I'm telling you how. Paul is teaching us how by this practice of resisting the natural thoughts and replacing them with the spiritual thoughts. I need to wrap this up, so let me just say these things to you. I want you to imagine for a few moments what your life will be like when you win this battle. That means you're gonna have to think about where where you're failing, where you're losing. You're gonna have to identify what those things are that pull you under. So imagine your life when you win this battle because the battle can be won. Imagine what happens when fear becomes faith. Imagine what will happen when emptiness is replaced with purpose. Then you know why you're here. Imagine what it'll be like when temptation is replaced by trust. I don't have to give in to that, do I? Because God has a way out. Imagine what will happen when lies are replaced with truth. When anger is replaced with kindness. When self is replaced with Christ. Imagine that. That's what he promises. That's what he promises. It's too hard for me. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm under too far. I've gone too far the other way. No, no, and no. Nothing is too difficult for God. But you must believe him for it to come about. I want you to stand with me if you would today. With your heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. Today at the conclusion of this prayer, you have an opportunity to do something to change your life. It may be today that you need to make the decision to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. Listen, if you made a verbal profession of faith to Christ but did not surrender to him, you need to go back and look and see if that was real. And that's why we have decision stations here today to help you with that conversation. Have you given your life to Christ? Is it obvious? Is it clear? Has it ever been clear? And if not, help take those steps today by having those conversations. Christ will forgive you. He will give you eternal life. He will set you free. That's the first decision you need to make. Secondly, decide what to do with your mind. What will you do with your mind from this day forward? Will you resist? Will you replace? What will you do? As I pray, I'm praying for you to make these decisions and for the power of God to be at work in your life. If you're a guest today, I'd love to visit with you in our guest reception room. I'd love for you to stop by our decision station so that you can make the decisions that are life transforming. Father, in Jesus' name today, I'm so, so grateful for your supernatural power that changes lives. You changed my life, Lord. You completely gave me a new mind and a new ability to follow you, to know you. Lord, you overcame all those old things in my life, and I'm so grateful that you have. And Father, I know that promise holds true for every person in this room. 
Every person who will look to you and trust you and believe in you can have that same promise fulfilled in their lives. And I pray today, Lord, in the same way Paul begged, Lord, I, I beg you that each person will make this decision today and not walk away. Father, thank you for what you've done, what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen.